the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com on uh, Twitter, Facebook, at Dan Proft Show. Also at Dan Proft on social media. Uh, and um, thank you for joining us again. We want to start the show today talking about uh, uh, the economic impact of coronavirus and the federal as well as state and local response, but mainly the federal response. At the, coronavi- uh, the coronavirus task force briefing yesterday, you recall President Trump was asked, about the size of the checks that uh, his administration wants to get into the hands of the people. What, what size will the checks be that will be sent out to uh, To be determined. We're working with the uh, Senate right now. We're working with everybody on Capitol Hill. There's been tremendous. Uh, there really has been. I mean, with, with some exceptions, obviously, because it's always the way it is. But there has been. Uh, they've been getting along very well, Republicans and Democrats. And they uh, got along well enough that uh, Steve Mnuchin announced this morning, Treasury Secretary, on uh, with Maria Bartiromo on Fox Business, that uh, $1,000 checks in the hands of all Americans within the next three weeks. This in addition to the legislation that uh, moved out of the House and then yesterday through the Senate, as advertised by Mitch McConnell, that provides 14 days of paid sick leave, uh, sick days, 14 days of paid sick days to workers affected by the virus, ensures free testing for the virus to everyone, including the uninsured, and expands food aid and boosts unemployment dollars to the states. And the last part will be particularly important and impactful as uh, expected. First-time jobless applications uh, spiked this week, up 30% week over week, 281,000 first-time filers for unemployment. For more on what is to be done and an assessment of what is being done to – try to marshal the American economy through this virus. We're pleased to be joined by Michael Strain, he, Dr. Michael Strain. He's the director of economic policy studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Dr. Strain, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be on. And so um, your uh, reaction to what has been done so far on the economic side and what uh, is being bandied about with the larger one trillion dollar, quote unquote, stimulus package. I mean, what's been done so far is uh, uh, very good and it's a good start, but it's not nearly enough uh, uh, relative to what is going to be needed. the world changed a lot over the weekend when many of the city's mayors and governors decided to shut down uh, their services economies. That is uh, going to put tremendous pressure on uh, small businesses um, and mid-sized businesses. Uh, if these businesses are shut down for a month or two, they're not going to be able to stay open. They're certainly not going to be able to stay open without avoiding significant layoffs. These businesses operate on very thin margins. 
and and they're not manufacturing companies. They're not going to come back to work in May with a backlog of orders. The revenue they lose over the next month or two is permanently lost. And so it's great that we you know tinkered with paid leave, and it's great that we strengthened unemployment insurance, and it's great that we did the things that that that, that the Senate did yesterday. Um, but we really need to, to do much more, and we need to be focusing our efforts on uh, keeping workers in their jobs and keeping these businesses afloat during this time. So something like what uh, Senator Rubio proposed, which was uh, the $50 billion in new SBA loans that uh, the president had uh, previously mentioned, he sponsored legislation animating that idea. Uh, but also importantly there, he, he suggests that uh, for those businesses who use their SBA loan money to keep the, paying their employees, there, it won't be a loan. It'll be a grant. The SBA loan would be forgiven. Yeah, something like that. And I think Senator Rubio has made a, a good start on it. Um, I, I think that there will likely need to be more done. Um, so it's good to see uh, Senator Rubio and, and Senator Collins moving in the right direction. Uh, it's good to see that Senator McConnell is open to that. Um, we need to make sure that we get the rest of the Senate on board and, 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 and the House and the president and uh, uh, need to make sure that, it, that that what we're doing is of the right magnitude. What, what about um, uh, on the fiscal side? There were some ideas advanced. Uh, uh, Bill Dupore, who's a Board of Governors member at the St. Louis Fed, uh, suggested a couple of things. One was um, 70% uh, subsidy for uh, COBRA premiums for the unemployed, which was something similar to what was done during the uh, financial crisis in 2008 under the 2009 Recovery Act. Uh, also, uh, a suggestion that's been made uh, from a couple different quarters, remove the 10 percent uh, early withdrawal penalty for uh, taking money out of your IRAs so that people can help themselves to their own money to help themselves through this time. These are all good ideas. Um, uh, these are all good ideas, and they all should be considered. I think uh, the right thing for the Congress to do is to focus on speed, what can be done quickly uh, because, again, these businesses were shut down over the weekend and early this week, and, and more shutdowns are probably coming. And I think these businesses are a couple of weeks, but it's going to be hard for them to weather a month. And, and you know, Congress trying to design a new plan, get it up on its feet, and then get uh, the relief out the door, that's going to take longer than a couple of weeks. Um, so, But so, so uh, does, uh, does that take yeah. the, does, that, does that take the form then of like to all of these affected industries? And of course, everybody is queuing up um, just secured loans from everything to the airlines, to uh, the hoteliers, to uh, the travel industry generally, for example. Uh, I think loans to bigger businesses make sense. Um, you know, smaller businesses, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a restaurant and you own 10 and you have 10 employees, right. you know, and you lose two months of revenue, I don't know why you take out that loan. Right. You're not getting that revenue back. You're operating on a paper thin profit margin. Um, I think instead you lay off your workers or, 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 or maybe you even shut down. You know, we need to be thinking realistically about what, uh, uh, what small businesses are going to do in the face of these uh, challenges. And, you know, talking about COBRA, talking about IRAs, those things make sense. It would be even better if we could keep workers employed and keep their paychecks flowing during this period. You know, then there would be less need for some of these other kind of more, more uh, boutique uh, type policy solutions. But, but then, I mean, but are we talking about, you know, bailing out uh, or, or providing uh, cash grants to every restaurateur in America? 
I think it's worth considering for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just that the scale of that, I mean, you would, you would agree that, um, you know, these sorts of, uh, quote unquote, uh, stimulus payments today are just, uh, taxation tomorrow, right? I mean, we're just deferring things we're going to pay for ultimately. That's right. Right now we have very low interest rates. We can borrow very cheaply. Um, Doing something like that would save money in other programs. You know, if if, if we we kept uh, people's paychecks going, there'd be less of a need for unemployment insurance, less of a need for food stamps, less of a need for cash welfare, less of a need for some of these other ideas that people are coming. So some of the costs would be recouped. Um, it's important not to overstate how much this would cost. I think this would cost in the high hundreds of billions of dollars. I don't think it would cost trillions of dollars. Remember, most people work for big companies. Uh, most you know, right. so there are a lot of restaurants, but you know the total number of people who work at restaurants is actually you know you know fifteen million or something like that. F- it, it's like they they they, they peg percent of the U.S. Uh, yeah. labor force or something like I that. I mean they they peg so, like all those in the, uh, the these sectors that have been most hardly hit, like tr- you know travel and service and restaurants at about uh, one in five, right? Yeah, something like that. So it's not you know so 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 I think so I think you know when you say bail out the restaurants and <laughs> bail out the services sector, you know that I I understand the knee jerk. Oh my gosh, that's that's absurdly expensive. Um, but I think it'd be I think it'd be less expensive than, than a lot of people think. And finally, you know, the costs of doing nothing are significant. Also, uh, the costs of doing nothing are significant. Uh, the cost of having the unemployment rate go up to eight percent or possibly even higher. The costs of trying to connect those workers with new jobs. The costs of losing all of the networks and all of the uh, proprietary knowledge and all of the and all of the skill accumulation that these small business owners have built up over the years, uh, the costs of discouraging future entrepreneurship because people are worried that you know that 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 whenever something bad happens they're going to lose the business they've built. I mean these are all very serious concerns, um, and so we need to be thinking about this situation for what it is—a once-in-a-century pandemic. Uh, businesses that are being hurt right now are not being hurt because they made bad decisions. They're not being hurt because they uh, uh, a competitor came along and is doing better than they are. They're not being hurt because technology has evolved. And, and you know, you can't buy insurance for a once-in-a-century pandemic. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is why we have government. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to pick up uh, from a piece that you co-authored with a colleague, uh, Scott Gottlieb, who's also resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, talk a little bit more about uh, some of the ideas that you gentlemen have. We're talking to Michael Strain, he's the Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American, American Enterprise Institute. We'll be back with more right after this. Yes, it's true. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're talking to dr michael strain director of economic policy studies as well as the arthur f burns scholar in political economy at the american enterprise institute and before the break, I, I mentioned uh, this piece that you and Scott Gottlieb, who is the former FDA director under President Trump, authored in The Wall Street Journal uh, last week. 
And uh, among the things that you said, which is very similar to what Dr. Gottlieb was saying when he was doing the uh, uh, Sunday talk shows uh, that weekend, Congress should not wait until the crisis intensifies to enact the measures that you talked about and some of the measures that we were talking about before the break. And one of the things that Scott Gottlieb was saying on those Sunday talk shows, I remember particularly him on Face the Nation, was, look, uh, parts of our economy are going to shut down. Cities are going to shut down. Not a lot of people were saying it at the time, but he was prescient in terms of how this was, whether you wanted to play out this way or not, this was how it's going to play out. And so I wonder if uh, it would have been, it would have behooved uh, members of Congress to take uh, the advice that he was offering on those Sunday talk shows uh, to heart a bit earlier. Well, um, you know, it, 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 I mean, look, I think we could have <laughs> I think we could have been better prepared for this in a number of ways. You know, the, I think the key thing that we that we were underprepared for was testing people. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of what you're seeing right now uh, is driven by uncertainty um, about the number of people who were infected and about the number of people who have been infected and about the severity of, of the infection among people who are infected and about the mortality rate uh, among the people who, who do develop uh, uh, infections. And, you know, that is creating a situation where we're shutting down services sectors, we're telling people to stay in their houses, uh, financial markets are in a panic. So, you know, what we, what we really need is more information, and, that's, uh, and, and we were behind the ball on that. Right, and, 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 and again, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to discount it, but by the same token, proportion here, I, I just wonder on the, uh, the economic side if um, there's a little bit of uh, 16, or 17th century Dutch tulip mania going on. Uh, Dan Henninger sort of uh, strikes that note in his piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, on on the matter. And um, uh, professor of uh, epidemiology and biomedical data science at Stanford University uh, penned this piece the other day talking about the big decisions that we're making on both sides, the public health side and the economic side, with really um, unreliable information and whether or not some of these big decisions uh, should be uh, should be restrained until you get better data. Yeah, I mean, I think I think events may prove that view to be uh, true. Events may prove that view to be false, um, and we just and we just don't know. You know, what I would like to see is uh, the government, you know, randomly test two or three thousand people in every state every day, uh, and we can actually get a sense as to how widespread this virus is, rather yeah. than relying on testing people who are actually, you know, f- feeling ill showing up at, at, at testing centers and then just looking at the total count of the infections. Um, you know, I, I started to interrupt so you, but, more I, but information will be better. yeah, but I, I totally agree with that. And I, this has been, been a sort of a debate on the op-ed pages between uh, actual medical doctors and experts in this field, which I am not, I'm neither, but, but um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of refereeing their argument, but I'm, I'm surprised by Tony Fauci and, uh, and Dr. Burks there, you know, don't get tested uh, unless you're symptomatic but but the whole idea of getting um, of, te- of of getting a random representative sample of the population for anything, whether it's about who you're voting for or something like this, it would give you the opportunity to model better to have a more accurate picture, wouldn't it? I think it would, and I think their advice is just driven by the fact that there um, you know aren't aren't enough tests. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, um, there's that right. There is that issue, and hopefully that starts to get remedied this week, at least according to the briefings that they've uh, offered the last couple of days, suggests it will. Um, what, uh, what One other thing Dan Henninger uh, uh, offers up in his piece I want to get your reaction to 
talking about the lasting damage to the economy after we get to the other side of this. He writes, when it's over, every level of government, federal, state and local, should declare a two year holiday from regulatory costs, such as the minimum wage. Ask any big city shopkeeper or business owner if that relief wouldn't help him hire back staff and turn up the curve and turn the curve up quickly. Ask the laid off workers if they take that deal. Um, what, what do you say? I mean, assuming that we don't get the the, uh, the the bailout that you were describing before the break of, of all the restaurateurs and service industry folks, what do you think about what Dan Henninger is advising there? Um, you know, I think we need to think pretty seriously about about measures to stimulate the economy after this is all done and doing coach hiring. And I think saddling businesses with excessive regulations is exactly the thing to avoid. Uh, and uh, and are you as optimistic as Dick Grasso, the former New York Stock Exchange uh, chairman, who said, uh, "Look, morning is there's a morning coming, and uh, we can uh, we can restart the economy just as quickly as it came to a halt." That seems to be at odds with what uh, a lot of economists are saying. We can restart the economy as quickly as it as, as it came to a halt, depending on what we do while it is halted. Um, if we don't do things for these businesses, if we don't do things for uh, for um, uh, uh, for uh, workers, then we're not going to be able to turn it back on. Uh, uh, you know, so I think I think it really I think it really depends on, on what we do, which is why I'm trying to urge Congress to act uh, really and quickly. Uh, I wanted to get your uh, lastly get your reaction to the Fed's decision making throughout the crisis. Uh, Jerome Powell's decision making there, uh, for example, the decision to uh, cut rates to near zero over the weekend. Uh, how how do you rate the performance of Powell and the Fed? You know, I think I think that uh, that that the commercial paper facility that the Fed stood up uh, is an excellent move. I think the actions of the New York Fed to make sure that the repo market uh, is uh, liquid uh, are an excellent move. I think that the federal fund rate was going to go to zero. Uh, at some point in the near future. And so taking it to zero immediately makes sense to me, um, you know, whether or not you know, that, that should have waited until a regularly scheduled meeting, I think is uh, an open question. Uh, opening swap lines with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, foreign central banks makes a lot of sense to make sure the dollars continue to flow around the world as they're needed to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I think looking at longer term asset purchases again, in order to keep those markets liquid, um, uh, makes sense as well. So, you know, the Fed is doing what it can do. The issue is that there is a lot less the Fed can do uh, in this crisis because uh, uh, the federal funds rate was so low because the ten-year Treasury is yielding below one percent. So there's just less the Fed can do, which is which again just steps up the pressure on Congress to get something done. Is the prospect of uh, America recovering from this uh, better than uh, most other nations? Because uh, when people do come out of this and uh, the economies do restart, there's likely to be a flight to quality. And America is uh, still the tallest skyscraper in Wichita, to borrow a Buckleyism. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we need to we need to we need to get the response to this, Ray. That's that, that's really going to matter. All right. He is Dr. Michael Strain, Director of Economic Policy Studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and at yesterday's briefing and uh, subsequent interviews by the D.C. press corps during the day of other Trump antagonists, there was some testiness. I don't know if you caught this. Uh, Cecilia Vega, ABC News White House correspondent, this exchange with the president after the coronavirus ta- or at the end of the coronavirus task force briefing yesterday morning. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bi- bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people it comes say from it's China. racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. I and want to be accurate. Yeah, please, John. I have great love uh, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, Maybe they stopped now that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Uh, It comes from China. And even more agitated than Cecilia Vega was Bolshevik Bernie Sanders seeing his campaign go by the boards and um, trying to deflect questions about uh, when he is going to formally get out of that race. You know, we're dealing with it, you, and you're asking me these questions, right? You're running for president, so... Just well, right now, I'm running... Right now, I'm trying to do my best to make sure that yeah. we don't have an economic meltdown mm-hmm. and that people don't die. Is that enough for you to I've, keep me busy for tonight? Whoa, the effing, the F-bomb comes out from uh, the Bolshevik, and uh, he is trying to make sure we don't have an economic meltdown. Insert your own punchline there for more... On this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Chris Buskirk, the editor and publisher of, of American Greatness, amgreatness.com, contributing opinion writer at the New York Times. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Cecilia Vega, you know, you're a racist. Uh, Bernie Sanders is trying to save Western civilization. Meanwhile, over at the Daily Beast, Rick Wilson, the gentleman who coined the phrase credulous boomer rubes to describe Trump supporters, you cheered as he effed up. There's that effort again. No take backs, Trumpists saying that uh, Trump was AWOL for six weeks. And that's why we're in the predicament we're in a uh, bit of a crack up happening. Uh, those who are predisposed to hate Trump and try to spend the next seven months taking him out. I see. Yeah, it is. I mean, I guess I'll, I'll let me start with uh, with Bernie for a second, which is uh, can you imagine having Bernie as president right now? I mean, it, it's it's a question that answers itself and it, it kind of goes to the what I've been thinking of is the performative nature of a lot of politicians during this crisis, uh, which leads me to believe that they don't think it's as serious as they claim they do, that they're making it a, a, a more of a media event. Uh, you know, if you were in the middle of the Black Plague in 17th century London, you would not be asking, well, why are you calling it the Black Plague? Does that have something to do? You don't like the color black? <laughs> you know, it's, it's ridiculous. It, it's the idea that Cecilia Vega can sit there and the one thing that she is focused on is why are you calling it uh, a Ch- the Chinese virus or the Chinese flu tells me that they, she has time to do that because there aren't hundreds of thousands of people dying around her, thank God. You know, she still is able to uh, sort of engage in this performance art masquerading 
as journalism. And the same goes for so many of these people who are less focused on the immediate concerns of treating the virus or dealing with people who are without jobs, and they're just still on their same hobby horses. Everything gets reduced to race, sex, gender, uh, class conflict, et cetera. And uh, I think that's a little bit of a tell that, uh, that they have other agendas at play here, and that they, it is not uh, dealing with what started off as a public health issue and is becoming, I think, more and more just a, a straight-up economic crisis. Well, right. And, you know, here's the, the other piece about that, too, uh, with respect to just the terming of it. The terming of it is not, uh, as Richard Engel uh, argued, uh, because anybody believes that the virus speaks Chinese, okay, uh, it's about uh, making sure people know that it emanated from China, not because it has anything to do with that country or that ethnicity, except to the extent that the Chinese communists in charge covered it up, exacerbating and setting uh, setting uh, uh, loose uh, this pandemic. And so that is relevant. And by it's the way, totally and by relevant. the and by well, the way, in, in the Mandarin language press, I'm I'm told by people who read Mandarin that it is being called uh, the Wuhan pneumonia. The Taiwanese, for instance, are, are insistent upon calling this Wuhan pneumonia. Now they have their own conflicts with the with the with the People's Republic of China. But I mean, this is such a such a distraction from things totally. that are way more important. Why are you calling it the Chinese? Uh, virus or the Wuhan flu or whatever. I mean, the, the 1918-19 epidemic was called the Spanish flu. You know, there's something called the swine flu. There was the Hong Kong flu in the 60s. I mean, this is just such a stupid point for people to be wasting time on. Especially when uh, all when Cecilia Vega and all her colleagues were referring to it as the Wuhan virus or the China virus two weeks ago. It was only when right. Trump made the same invocation that all of a sudden it became racist and problematic. When we come back with AmGreatness.com's Chris Buzzkirk, we'll discuss an instance of actual good reporting on COVID-19, specifically as it relates to China's cover-up of the outbreak in the early stages. More with Chris Buzzkirk when we come back. I can call you Betty, Betty when you call me, you can call me out. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Chris Buskirk, editor publisher of amgreatness.com. I wanted to uh, begin with an instance of, of actual good reporting on COVID-19, and particularly as it relates to China. Axios, Axios put together the timeline of China's cover-up of the outbreak um, from December 10th forward to the end of January. So, I mean, it's, this is all documented in there. It's even though it's a silly distraction, as you say, it's also one that's easily answered. No, it's yes, of course it is. I mean, I think and common sense, you know, sort of normal people look at, look at uh, somebody like Cecilia Vega who's talking to the president about this, and they think. Um, like, I just lost my job, or I don't know if I'm going to have a job next week, or my cousin has the coronavirus, and they're thinking, why are you talking about this when maybe we should be trying to figure out a way to secure the nation? Why is it that Why is it that 97% of our antibiotics are made in China, so we're not secure in that regard? Why is it that most of our respirators are made in China, so we're not secure there? Why, don't we, why aren't we talking about those things, things that could actually help people? Uh, and so I wanted to get to your piece, too, uh, to more substantive matters, this piece that you wrote, The Real Threat from Coronavirus, uh, where you uh, essentially do a bit of a SWOT analysis, the dangers and opportunities, and you categorize them in three buckets, the, the public health, the economic, and uh, just the bad policy in both areas, the, the, the 
potential opportunity for good policy, the potential pitfall of bad policy with respect to the, the aforementioned two. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of look at it, I try to look at it and say, you know, look, there are there are problems or challenges and there are opportunities. And, you know, the, 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 the real threats that I saw are, number one, the public health threat, number two, the economic threat, number three, um, and number three, the, the danger of bad policy. The public health threat, I think, is um, is real. But again, we're not talking about you know the the London plague of 1665. Thank God. Um, this is a story that I've been uh, covering and thinking about a lot since the middle of January. And as I say in the piece, you know, back in the end of January and the beginning of February, there was a legitimate uh, concern and possibility among people who were watching this when it just came out of nowhere in uh, central China that you know maybe this really is that most horrible deadly virus that people have feared, one that's super contagious like the measles, and one that is super deadly like the MERS or, or like bubonic plague. And it's not that. And thank God for that. You know, that that's uh, that's something we dodged that bullet. Um, and so what we have is something that is uh, is certainly contagious. It certainly is deadly, uh, deadlier for, you know, older or sicker people. Uh, but it's not the worst case scenario. And so what we've seen is data, uh, as the data comes out is that the the severity of the probable worst case scenario keeps getting less bad. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. Thank God for that. But there are real threats that if left um, undealt with, that you could get these, you could get these localized or regionalized clusters of a lot of, um, of a lot of patients all at once surging into hospitals. This is sort of what basically what you see in Northern Italy and that it overwhelms the hospital systems. And that as a result of that, people who would normally be able to be treated and in a couple of weeks, they'd be released and they'd be healthy. Again, those people would not be able to get the sort of intensive uh, care that they require because the resources just aren't there. They've been overwhelmed. And that those people die and you get a higher fatality rate than you otherwise would. And this really is the northern Italy situation. There's a lot of other things that go into the Italy situation because their population is much older. Um, and so that makes them more susceptible to this. But, you know, my point is, is that this really is where government and public health resource, resources should be focused, which is in raising the capacities, creating a basically a mobile surge capacity in case that happens, say, in a Seattle or in San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York, where we, where we already have uh, the most, you know, those are the four places where we have the most uh, concentration of cases and be able to, for instance, stand up a military hospital or like the president did yesterday, yesterday, send Navy hospital ships. Uh, you know, we should, uh, and again, the president, I think is doing the right thing when he uh, invoked the, the, the uh, defense production act and say, okay, we're going to start producing a, a certain set of goods onshore because we need them right now. And we need to turn on American production for these critical uh, care items. And so that raises the capacity, which allows us to deal with the public health element. Because the, the other two elements, which are, you know, basically an economic crisis, which is effectively what I think we're in the process of creating by shutting down the whole country. And then we're dealing with, and you see the Fed with its quantitative easing and the, uh, the Congress is, uh, they, you know, they passed the second uh, relief bill yesterday. They're going to do a bigger one, I guess, in the next few days. And I'm, I don't know about you, Dan, I'm always so concerned when um, when everybody in Congress is agreeing on these yes, things, there's right. chances for bad policy are right. extreme, right? right? And then we yeah. live with the consequences forever. Yeah, tough to unwind some of the, the gambits as we saw with some of the decisions that were made to uh, deal with the financial crisis of 2008 and, 
and what came and, and, and now in a decade in the rearview mirror, what came and went, things like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which has been another regulatory racket. And uh, what have we done with Fannie and Freddie, frankly, um, uh, further eliminate uh, the private marketplace in favor of uh, those uh, government operators or quasi-government operators. So there's, not to mention, the lessons learned, things like just writing checks to Americans uh, on somebody else's, off somebody else's checkbook down the road uh, is not stimulative. It may help people in need for uh, something to uh, fill the gap for paying bills and so forth, and I understand that and appreciate that and can respect that, but don't sell it as something that it's not, which is a, a sort of a pet peeve of mine as well. But I wanted to uh, turn to the politics of this because as you're talking about what uh, professionals in the space of economics and and healthcare are doing to address the substantive matters here, you have the left spending a lot of time trying to, and not just uh, their handmaids to the media, uh, but including their handmaids to the media, trying to tag Trump with uh, the responsibility for uh, you know all the badness and, uh, of course, none of the credit for any of the foresight, including the early decision to close the border to Chinese travelers. Uh, Juan Williams writing at The Hill, thehill.com. What's next? Cancel the November election? It could come to that because despite the power of incumbency and a passionate political base, President Trump's political prospects are looking shaky. The Trump administration's incompetent response to the coronavirus has sent financial markets on a roller coaster wide ride while triggering an explosion of public anxiety. This uh, just uh, posted a couple of days ago by Juan Williams. So um, he's uh, he's a king. Uh, no, he wasn't a king, but we want him to act like a king. No, we don't want him to act like a king and cancel the election. But that's what he's going to do because he's an autocrat. He is Chris Buzkirk. He's the editor and publisher of American Greatness, amgreatness.com, contributing uh, opinion writer at The New York Times as well. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Take care. Now I've been crying lately. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. What about uh, man's best friend in this uh, age of coronavirus? What about uh, petting dogs and petting other people's dogs in particular? Well, uh, we got a sad news uh, in the last 24 hours that the first known dog to test positive for the coronavirus has died in Hong Kong after recovering from the disease. Now, it is worth noting that uh, the Pomeranian that passed away on Monday, 17 years old. So, (laughs) I mean, thinking about, I don't know, the elderly human population, elderly dog population, 17 years old. That's a pretty good run. Uh, but uh, again, tested. He was quarantined after testing positive. It was sort of a weak positive test, but he was tested positive. Then he w- tested negative before being returned to uh, the 60 year old uh, Hong Kongan who owned him and then passed away, unfortunately. So it sort of brings up the question how did pet dogs during coronavirus pandemic? You're still going out and walking your dog, aren't you? I know I am walking uh, my dog. Uh, English gentleman named Hayek, my pup. Uh, This from the Washington Post trying to help answer that question. Can I still pet other people's dogs? What do the professionals say? Uh, Of course, there's no simple answer. They want to take too much of a stand. 
Uh, Experts say there is no reason to keep your paws off your own dog if you have no symptoms of sickness. Things are a bit less clear when it comes to other dogs. Uh, This in particular, for example, this uh, dog in Hong Kong that's being mentioned. Uh, The dog showed no symptoms. Researchers say a single case is not strong evidence that dogs can catch the virus. There's no indication, furthermore, that dogs or any other pet can transmit it to humans, the virus, through droplets. That's according to the World Health Organization. Given the unknowns about the disease, experts do recommend people infected with COVID-19 stay away from pets as they should stay away from people, err on the side of safety and distance. So the most conservative approach would be to refrain from touching others' dogs because the owner could be asymptomatic. But according to the American Veterinary Medical Association, there is little reason to avoid petting. We're not uh, overly concerned about people contracting COVID-19 through contact with dogs and cats, said Gail Golab, the American Veterinary Medical Association's chief veterinary officer. Uh, because diseases are other diseases are known to spread between people and animals, the association nevertheless recommends that people always wash their hands before and after dog petting. So sort of best practices like you would in any other situation uh, and just sort of the normal course of life. Um, so, so yeah, so you, you know, don't worry about your dog as long as you're negative and really, you don't really have to worry about other people's dogs, if, except of course, if you have, if you don't have the other owner's permission, that's the only thing you'd have to worry about because some people are going to be more jumpy at the old dog park than others, just as they are in regular day-to-day life. This is proud dog owner, Dan Proff. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com. It's also where you can find podcasts of previous shows, as well as on Spotify and iTunes, uh, social media at Dan Prof Show or, and or at Dan Prof. Uh, the briefing on today's Coronavirus Task Force briefing led by the president. First, I want to start with the news out this morning. Important because of these dubious comparisons being made uh, uh, of Italy and the United States which I've sort of rejected out of hand for the last several days, but persist nonetheless. Uh, After deaths, this Bloomberg News reporting, after deaths from the virus reached more than 2,500 in Italy with a 150% increase in the past week, health authorities there began combing through the data uh, in an effort to try to identify clues as to the virus's spread. Makes sense. Here's what they found that of those who have died in Italy from the coronavirus, 99% had other illnesses. Less than 1%, eight-tenths of a percent had no illness. 25% had one other illness. 26% had two other illnesses. 49% had three or more illnesses in addition to coronavirus. More than three-quarters had high blood pressure. About a third had diabetes. And a third suffered from heart disease. 
the median age of the infected was, is 63, but uh, those who passed away, unfortunately, uh, significantly older, most the uh, majority between 70 and 90. So, again, this is not to discount what's happening in Italy. It's not to discount the loss of life in general, each individual life. But it is to provide some contextual information so that we're assessing what we understand to be true rationally. And uh, importantly, some positive developments with respect to antiviral treatments, and that was the impetus for uh, today's briefing by the president. So we slash red tape to develop vaccines and therapies as fast as uh, it can possibly be done uh, long before anybody else was even thinking about doing this. And as you know, earlier this week, we began the first clinical trial of a vaccine candidate for the virus, and that was launched in record time. It was just a few weeks, and uh, that would have taken years to do, not so long ago. Clinical trials are already underway for many new therapies, and we're working on scaling these to allow many more Americans to access different drugs that have shown really good promise. We've had some un really good promise. Uh, we will do so in a way that lets us continue to collect good data to know which medicines are safe and which medicines are working the best. We have a couple that we're we're in really good shape on. Uh, and that's for immediate delivery. Immediate. Like, as fast as we can get it. And uh, the president spoke about these specifically. I just uh, start with, uh, you know, sort of clearing some prospective antiviral treatments that turned out not to be effective. One, this was a combination of two uh, antiviral medicines that are normally used to treat HIV. This had held some promise. Well, New England Journal of Medicine came out with a study on Wednesday that no benefit was observed. So the prompt that this is a treatment for coronavirus, no benefit was observed in the in the experimental group. So this does not appear to be an effective treatment for the virus. Okay, so that's on the one side. Uh, on the positive side, you have a couple of developments. One is this drug called Favipiravir, which is developed by a subsidiary of Fujifilm. This, according to uh, the Guardian reporting, uh, has produced encouraging outcomes in clinical trials in both Wuhan and Shenzhen involving 340 patients, a uh, Chinese science and tech ministry official telling reporters it has a high degree of safety and is clearly effective in treatment. That's one positive development, but there are others. In addition to that, according to the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation, Scientists are now testing both existing and experimental therapies. One of them that is showing promise is chloroquine phosphate, the drug uh, originally developed to fight malaria. And the president spoke about this, uh, as, as did FDA director Dr. Steven Zahn at the briefing today. Uh, the other uh, is a drug called remdemiz remdesivir. Uh, this was also the topic of conversation. Uh, between uh, FDA Director Zahn and the press corps, uh, NBC reporting on remdesivir, early stages, uh, early signs that an experimental treatment for people who become very sick from the coronavirus may start working within 24 hours of the first dose. This is uh, an antiviral treatment developed by Gilead. It basically stops the production of the virus, said Dr. E. Gregory Poland, 
who is uh, Dr. Gregory Poland, who is an infectious disease expert, director of the Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group in Rochester, Minnesota. And uh, the cases they profiled, uh, two hospitalized, two hospitalized uh, patients got the drug and started to feel better the next day. Chris Kane, 55, diagnosed with the coronavirus, hospitalized in Everett, Washington this month. His wife telling NBC News he was really sick. They put him on oxygen right away. The doctors decided to try remdesivir, and after the Trump promise and at least one earlier patient, research in, in animals had shown the drug uh, might treat MERS, another type of coronavirus, also widely promoted as a potential treatment for Ebola, but didn't show any significant benefit there. Then came COVID-19. And uh, about two weeks before Chris Kane arrived at the hospital, his doctors had treated a 35-year-old man who'd recently returned to Washington after traveling to Wuhan. He became the first person in the U.S. to be diagnosed with coronavirus. Within a week of being admitted to the hospital, his condition had deteriorated. His physicians, including the doctor who would later treat Chris Kane, the 55-year-old, worked with federal health authorities uh, to try remdesivir through what's called compassionate use reserved for unapproved drugs in specific potentially life-saving situations. And this is consistent with the the right to try uh, legislation sp- uh, signed into law by President Trump with respect to experimental drugs, as well as just the, you know, the attitude about this generally, in addition to the attitude here, which is to try to remove unnecessary regulatory uh, bottlenecks so as to expedite the clinical trials for those antiviral treatments that have that have shown a great potential as well as a vaccine. Now, importantly, on the vaccine, it was restated that the trials are expected to take a year. So uh, you, you may see reports vaccine going to trial, but that doesn't mean a vaccine will be on the market this season. It will not be. Some of these antiviral therapies, however, may be. Here's Dr. Steve Hahn, Trump's FDA director. Many Americans have read studies and heard media reports about this drug, chloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug. It's already approved, as the president said, for the treatment of malaria as well as an arthritis condition. That's a drug that the president has directed us to take a closer look at as to whether an expanded use approach to that could be done to actually see if that benefits patients. And again, we want to do that in the setting of a clinical trial, a large pragmatic clinical trial, to actually gather that information and answer the question that needs to be answered and asked and answered. So those are the two potentials, uh, chloroquine phosphate, as I mentioned, that's what uh, Dr. Zahn was talking about, and remdesivir, which was used in those two Washington state cases. Um, so some promise on the antiviral treatment space. And then uh, a bit of a light moment in the Q&A between President Trump and the press corps as uh, one of the reporters asked him about the uh, members of Congress who have been infected with the coronavirus and or self-quarantine for fear of infection, spreading the infection. Uh, President Trump had this to say, uh, novel approach to uh, limiting uh, the size of the press corps. Members of Congress are now being tested positive for coronavirus, and we, you have almost two dozen who are self-quarantining. Do you um, have any guidance for Congress? Should they? I know all of them, and uh, I don't know if they're sitting like you people are sitting. You're actually sitting too close. You should really, we should probably get rid of about another 75, 80 percent of you. I'll have just two or three that I like in this room. I think that's a great way of doing it. We just figured a new way of doing it. Uh, but you're actually much too close. You know, you two, you should leave immediately. <laughs> he was a little moment of levity at the press's expense, which is um, the appropriate party 
at whose expense to do it. Of course, the headline coming out of today will probably be, you know, press moves or uh, Trump moves to eliminate 80 percent of the press from the, these briefings or something ridiculous. Uh, but a nice moment of levity. One other serious note I wanted to make mention on the testing side, um, this development, positive development. Rapid test for coronavirus, which could give results in just 30 minutes for people at home, has been developed by Oxford University. The super sensitive test, which can pick up the virus in its very early stages when it might otherwise be missed, could be rolled out in testing centers within a couple of weeks and soon be available for home use. So there's another possible medical innovation that could help um, not just uh, the United States, but the world combat this virus. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Baltimore Mayor Jack Young, please stop shooting each other so hospital beds can be used for coronavirus patients. That's one law enforcement strategy. And at the same time as so many of these big cities are releasing prisoners from prison, otherwise issuing directives that arrests will not be made for a whole list of crimes, as was done in Philadelphia. Well, that's already the practice in places like Chicago. Well, at least they won't be prosecuted if they are arrested. Interesting times. That's real effective stuff, isn't it? That's real inspired leadership from these people at the local level. Nonetheless, uh, the good news is some good news out yesterday with respect to treatments as well as testing. Oxford University scientists report that they uh, have a, a test for coronavirus that could give a result within 30 minutes and be taken by people at home. The report by The Telegraph across the pond there, the super sensitive test, which can pick up the virus in its very early stages when it might otherwise have been missed, which is important, could be rolled out to testing centers within a fortnight. That's a two weeks for you English speakers uh, and could be available for home use. So that's good news. In addition to the expanded testing that's otherwise occurring, as was reported at the briefing yesterday by the president and his coronavirus task force starting with uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, who wanted to make sure people have context for the increase in numbers they're going to see with the expanded testing that's occurring and processing of those tests. It will be five to six days worth of tests being run in 24 to 48 hours. So our curves will not be stable until sometime next week. So patience is going to be required. I know that's in short supply at present. Also on the antiviral treatment side of it, There's some good news out of Japan, effectively. There's a report that a subsidiary of Fujifilm has produced an antiviral treatment that has produced encouraging outcomes in clinical trials in both Wuhan and Shenzhen, China, involving 340 patients. An official with the Chinese Science and Technology Ministry told reporters that it has a high degree of safety and it is clearly effective in treatment. You know, everything needs to be taken with a a hint, at least a hint of skepticism from China. But nonetheless, the flip side is there was the possibility that the combination of a couple of drugs that are being used to treat HIV patients would hold some promise. And the New England Journal of Medicine reported that that is not the case. There was no observed benefit. 
So, you know, science is uh, innovating as quick as possible to respond to the crisis. Let's rely on the experts to tell us what we should understand and also to level with us about what we don't know when we're trying to figure out because we're all adults and we can handle the information even incomplete because, you know, we have to make decisions without perfect information. That's just life. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Gil Mobley. He is an emergency trauma physician, also a microbiologist and missionary to Guatemala. Dr. Gil Mobley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. So, I, you know, I guess uh, starting on the uh, the testing side as well as the um, reports out of you know possible treatments and uh, the trials that are being conducted with various experimental drugs, um, do you see the, uh, the 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 pharma community and the medical community responding with everything that they have to respond with as quickly as they can? Yes, sir. We are stepping up to the plate thanks to the president's funding and final encouragement and realization. Unfortunately, the pantry is empty. Most of our supplies, reagents, and uh, parts come from China. We've got to get down to the basics and start manufacturing this stuff immediately. That's going to take a presidential executive order, and he can do it. And that was part of his invocation of the Defense Production Act yesterday. Yes, that's good news. We needed good news. This has been a steady state of the worst-case scenario, the perfect storm, day after day. Even this virus, even its contagiousness gets worse. Every single week we learn another route that it is spread. And the most recent thing is it's aerosolized. That means if you spray deodorant, it becomes aerosolized. It becomes one with the air. If you spray deodorant in a room, it hangs out. It's suspended. This coronavirus does the same thing, like dust particles. On a still morning, you got a laser beam of sun coming through your, your morning room. You see the little dust particles. That's what this thing does. It hangs around, and it's got these little spikes all around it, this little stucco, and it just is tremendously well transported with the breeze. Now, the good news is dilution is the solution to pollution. So distance. Don't get any closer than 10 feet if you're inside with someone else and they have a cold. There's lots of things we could cover, Dan, but the most important thing, if you think you have a cold right now and start off with fever and chills and it's lingering, you have COVID-19 till proven otherwise. You may have so just, those around you. You may have just replaced flatten the curve. Dilution is the solution to pollution. I can see that on, uh, on social media and even on T-shirts. Uh, Absolutely. Open the windows. Open the doors. We had an outbreak in our clinic two weeks ago. We could not get tested. They said it was the allergies. I said it was cold. They had fevers and chills. My staff insisted on showing up. I sent them home, but we still open all the doors to the clinics, all the window to the clinics, and practice universal precautions as if we all were zombies. We were infecting them, and they were infecting us. We are so far behind the curve, Dan. I'm scared to death. This is going to be worse than Italy unless we immediately play freeze tag as an entire country. We're the only country without any N95 masks. These are the simple like the mucky mouse uh, muzzle mask, not the big old things that you strap with canisters. These are the simple white things that are in 95. You could have bought them at Menards. Unfortunately, Menards gave the last 100,000 to China when they ordered them three months ago. Too bad we didn't see that coming. Didn't uh, Vice President Pence say something about the 3M providing 3 million of the masks that are used, otherwise used are for they? industrial? Where and... are they? Okay. They should have done this last December. Thank God we're, we're ranking up production now. Same thing with, with ventilators. We are already short ventilators in this country, lacking parts even before this from the bad flu season, which 
probably was some what masquerading COVID nineteen since December. We had uh, we heard from the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic the other day, and he suggested that that right now, in terms of the healthcare and infrastructure and its capacity, there is the capacity to handle the uh, virus. And I don't think he was just talking about uh, real numbers in real time. I think he was also contemplating the projected numbers that and the projected numbers based on social distancing, not the projected numbers like the Imperial College London study that was projected based on doing nothing. And of course, we're not doing nothing. Well, Dan, we're far from social distancing. And I don't think we're going to be able to uh, go through the draconian measures that China did, let alone South Korea. They said they, they blooded it in South Korea. So this is predicated on, on modeling. And, and also there's the desire to get more of this testing done for all, court, all sorts of reasons, including to inform the modeling about just exactly how widespread it is, uh, what how the, far how far along we are, and, right? And, know, and also, and also, Fauci says we're always two weeks or a month further behind than where we think we are. Well, that's right, but but also things like the lethality rate, and and you know, and by the way, just on that score, if if it's true, what was again one hypothesis that as many as eighty five percent of infected people are asymptomatic, then that would suggest a lot lower fatality rate than is otherwise being projected at this point. Absolutely. That's the darn truth. Yeah. You know, those that are going to the hospital have a grim course anyway. And the good news, Dan, about that is that's going to get us herd immunity. As soon as we have a large percentage that are immune in the herd and the population, boom, those that haven't got it yet can go out confidently, just as, you know, we have pretty much uh, herd immunity for a lot of things that we're not going to pick up outside of the community anymore. Just like hepatitis A, most of us have been vaccinated. We don't have to worry about it. So there you go. There is good news, Dan. <laughs> Just pray and hope and stay the hell home. Stay the hell home, people. Dr. Gil Mobley, emergency trauma physician, microbiologist, missionary to Guatemala. Dr. Gil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, CBS News caught up with some spring break revelers in uh, Miami. And, of course, uh, their comments about coronavirus and their concerns have gone viral because uh, they're so at odds with what uh, all the public health officials are saying and what people are otherwise doing. But uh, they're not so worried about coronavirus. At least they weren't when uh, CBS News caught up with them. Maybe that'll start to change as word gets out that uh, the U.S. uh, in the U.S. we've surpassed now 10,000 confirmed cases of infection. Maybe it'll start to get a little bit more real for these Gen Zers. But here's what they said when asked. If I get Corona, I get Corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. You know, I've been waiting. We've been waiting for Miami spring break for a while. About two months we've had this trip planned. Two, three months. So we're just not even having a good time. Whatever happens, happens. Like, it's really messing up with my spring break. What is there to do here other than go to the bars or the beach and they're closing all of it? It's really messing up. I think they're blowing it way out of proportion. I think it's doing way too much. Doing us bad. We need a refund. This virus ain't that serious. It's serious. It's more serious things out there like hunger and poverty. We need to address that. Yeah, I mean, we planned this a long time ago, and it was kind of up in the air if we still go, but, like, we're here. I just turned 21 this year, so I'm here to party, so it's kind of disappointing, but we're just making the most of it. We met these other people in our little Airbnb spot, so we're just hanging out with them and trying to get drunk before everything closes. Sure, yeah. 
I mean, it sucks, but we're gonna make the best we're of it. Enjoying we're enjoying ourselves. Now. It sucks, and I'm from New Orleans, so this really sucks. However, we're gonna enjoy ourselves. We having day parties all day. It's my birthday, St. Patrick's Day. Turn up. We're just trying to roll with the boy. We're just living for the moment. We're just going for. We're just gonna do what happens when it happens. When stuff closes, we're gonna do it when it closes. But uh, uh, besides that, we're just trying to have the best chip we can. We're yeah, only the good die young and rock on, dude, and all that. For more on uh, the topic and uh, all related, we're pleased to be joined by Francis Menton. He's the Manhattan contrarian. Francis, thanks for joining us. Ought to be young and impetuous, huh? How are you? Well, I say good luck to them. Yes. Probably they're all going to be fine. <laughs> well, perhaps, um, although they're... Uh, not inspiring uh, the admiration of uh, people a little bit older who uh, suggest they're sending the wrong message, of course. Uh, the good news, I suppose, is those are Gen Zers, not millennials. The millennials that Dr. Deborah Burke said are going to be the key to uh, getting to the other side of that curve with respect to this virus. Yeah, probably right. I mean, I'm 69, and my uh, children, who are 28 and 30, basically stampeded my wife and myself out of New York City and into the countryside oh, really? for the duration of this. And, and you know, I couldn't really say they were wrong. So here we are. Well, it's interesting because uh, you've got uh, Governor Cuomo uh, ratcheting up uh, the response today. Now it's it's gone from uh, 50 to 75 percent, uh, basically 75 percent of non-essential workers are to uh, shelter uh, non-essential workers, non-essential businesses are to shelter in place up from 50 percent in addition to all of the other component parts of the response with respect to health care infrastructure. And I wonder, um, you know, how you're reacting to uh, the decision making in your home state. Um, well, first of all, the office building where I have an office is still open as far as I know. When I say as far as I know, they they send out constant emails indicating that they are disinfecting this or that floor, but they haven't closed the building. And a, uh, a person can go there. Uh, my uh, financial advisors have, have clearly been at work in their office building. I don't even know if they count as essential or not with the stock market uh, plummeting. Yeah, but, right. You know, again, I, I am really... I, I, I pride myself on having the right answer to every question, but on this question, I don't really have the right answer, right? What, what is the correct amount to close down and what's the correct amount to isolate yourself and shelter yourself? Um, I, I really don't have the right answer to that. Well, when we uh, come back, uh, we're going to ask you if you've got uh, the right answer to some of the uh, environmentally incorrect tips uh, to uh, uh, deal with the coronavirus, which you uh, wrote about at your blog, ManhattanContrarian.com. And hey, uh, you know, for those revelers uh, and for older people watching the spring break revelers, it could be worse. Uh, a suspected coronavirus sufferer in Kenya was beaten to death by a group of young people uh, that acted as a vigilante mob. So, um, you know, we're, we're not quite Lord of the Flies to that extent yet. So that's the good news. More with Francis Benton, the Manhattan Contrarian, right after this.
fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Francis Menton. He is the Manhattan contrarian, and he has abdicated to the countryside from Manhattan for the uh, duration of the coronavirus or some approximation of it. And, uh, Francis, you write about uh, some of the uh, virtue signaling policies that have been all the rage for the last several years among uh, progressive politicians, like uh, taxing single-use plastic bags or banning them outright that uh, don't look so good now in retrospect in terms of uh, trying to contain the spread of a virus? Yeah, I I guess they thought that we had beaten infectious disease and so we could go on to other priorities like environmental virtue signaling, as you call it. In my post on this subject about plastic bags, I I relied upon the uh, uh, reporting and the research of a guy named John Tierney. Right. Uh, who's a longtime libertarian reporter around New York. Actually, I know him pretty well. And uh, he did a very good piece on on the infectious problems of reusing bags and taking them to the grocery store. You could very easily get infected things in there like meat leaking all over it. And then are you really going to wash it every time, your reusable bag? Those single-use plastic bags were very much a sanitary health issue. It's extremely funny that right now, just as the banning of plastic bags takes hold, and in, in New York it was scheduled to take effect on March 1st, by the way. Right. A total ban on plastic bags. The same day as, as the first case. Hold, the same day as the first case, right? That could be. Yeah. Uh, right around the same day, if it's not exactly the same day. And um, so just as as this ban is taking hold, it becomes uh, obvious that it's a huge mistake. Uh, and there are other examples uh, in the same line. I have to admit that I'm a big user of, of the mass transit system in New York, and, and that's been an environmentally correct cause for a number of years. People are staying away from it now for pretty obvious reasons. Ghost and, trains, yeah. And I understand the MTA is looking for about a $4 billion bailout from the feds. From the feds, of course. Well, the feds have it's – it's a lucky thing that the feds have a infinite supply of free money. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. Uh, although no, but they I'll, could just pass it out wherever they want. Although it, it has been interesting. I mean, it's, it is worth remarking upon that uh, your governor uh, there, Cuomo, has, uh, was, was quite complimentary of President Trump the other day. They seem, to be, they seem to have a good working relationship, which, frankly, is good news. They should have a good working relationship in a crisis. I hope they do, but I would not count on Cuomo not to uh, mm-hmm. uh, turn on him in a second if he thought he could get uh, the slightest political advantage out of it. Yeah. Um, going back to some of these uh, other uh, uh, environmental uh, uh, transgressions that are occurring now, uh, the lack of using public transportation, uh, re- reconsidering plastic uh, bag bans, at least uh, theoretically, uh, and uh, also, too, when it comes to, you know, cranking up the old thermostat. Well, there's a question. Um, uh, in, in researching for this post, I found a, uh, a an article out of China, uh, a, a like a scholarly journal article, 
uh, on the subject of what is the temperature at which the coronavirus best replicates, and they claim to have determined that it's 8.72 degrees Celsius. I, li- I like the precision of that. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how they got it that precise, but that's around 50 degrees uh, Fahrenheit or a little under. And then they say, uh, as the temperature goes up from there, the virus is less able to replicate. So the warmer, the better, uh, if you want to avoid this. They're really talking about outside rather than inside, but I don't know why it doesn't apply to inside. And um, inside, you have control over the temperature. So crank it up. And of course, you're not using a windmill to heat your house. I hate to tell you. Well, and <laughs> it's speaking fossil fuel. And speaking of the energy sector, um, how are how is everybody enjoying the hammering that uh, fossil fuel companies are taking uh, oil at its lowest price uh, in 18 years, which is in in part dragging down, um, uh, you know, the certainly dragging down the Dow. Um, but but how, how do you enjoy that? Where you just uh, like the politicians, some politicians, the AOCs, the Green New Dealers of the world want to do, just uh, flip a switch and turn off the fossil fuel industry. You're getting a little bit of a peek at what the Green New Deal would look like if uh, it was truly pursued. Yeah, it's not just AOC. I mean, I don't I don't know if you – I have a subsequent post, I don't know if you've even seen, but where I quoted the um, the statements by Sanders and Biden at the March 15th debate on this subject. I mean – Biden's, and I've just called it up in front of me so I can read it to you. Biden, no ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period, right. ends, right. number one. Yeah. No more, no new fracking. That's Biden. He's the sane one here. Uh, <laughs> right? Sanders, uh, the quote from him is, it is insane that we continue to have fracking in America. So the fracking revolution drove the price of oil from $100 plus a barrel about five years ago down to 50. Now it's 30. I don't know that the last 10 or $20 is so much from the fracking revolution as the immediate effect of the current yeah, no question. Uh, frenzy. No, not to mention the, uh, the, the collusion, appears to be collusion between Russia and Saudi Arabia. I mean, there are multiple, multiple variables here, but the idea of uh, throwing fossil fuel executives into jail that Bernie uh, proposed and but Biden has now adopted and otherwise uh, trying to cripple those industries. That is just bad economic sense. So if you don't like this to be what we're experiencing the last couple of weeks to be the new normal, you may want to reconsider what you're hearing from uh, the uh, Democrat presidential nominee, Joe Biden, right? It's, it, it is completely unbelievable to me that fossil fuels, which are the key to our economic success, they're fundamental to our civilization let alone our strategic position in the world. I mean, the decline in the price of oil has crippled the likes of Russia, Iran, Venezuela, even Saudi Arabia. They can't pay their bills. They, they, Russia has had to cut its military budget by close to half because they don't have the money for it. It's the best possible thing that could happen to us. And we have people running for president who say they're going to reverse all that and drive the price of oil back up and put Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia back in the driver's seat. It, it, it could not possibly like make less sense. It should uh, make for interesting uh, debate topics, though, if we can get past uh, this uh, COVID-19 matter before the fall. He is Francis Menton. He's the Manhattan Contrarian. Check out his postings, themanhattancontrarian.com. Francis Menton, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank you. So I- 
listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, last hour, we talked about how to pet dogs in the era of coronavirus. Uh, how about golf, playing golf? You know, trying to do the thing C.S. Lewis uh, admonished us to do, writing 72 years ago in his piece, Living Through the Atomic Age, uh, that uh, we should do human things, not let this dominate every waking moment, not let this occupy all of our mind share. Uh, this, uh, good news about golf and, uh, the club I belong to is still open. You can walk, there's two courses, you can, Olympia Fields, for those of you who are golf fans, you'll know it, uh, across the nation. We're supposed to host the BMW this year, so hopefully that doesn't get canceled or postponed, I suppose, like the Masters and the Players' Championship. But anyway, you can walk one of the courses, weather permitting, because, uh, in Chicago we're still not exactly in balmy season, but, uh, they have taken evasive action with respect to, you know, the, the men's grill in terms of same sort of thing as any other restaurant, uh, takeout, uh, and, uh, well, yeah, basically takeout is all that you can do. Um, but can you play golf? You're out in, um, you're outdoors. You can obviously exercise social distance. What would be the problem? Well, uh, that question was posed by golf magazine to Dr. Kelly Cawcutt, who's an associate director of infection control and, Hospital Epidemiology uh, at uh, the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. And she says, and she is a golfer, being in a wide open outdoor space is the least risk scenario. So you have to follow precautions. You normally wouldn't have to, but I would play under the guidance, the guidance of basically doing the same things they're telling you to do with respect to everything else other than social isolation. Cause you know, you can play with friends. It's okay. Uh, she says, you know, pack some hand sanitizer, do hand sanitizing, hand washing throughout the round should be as welcomed as hitting the fairway off the tee. The doctor says uh, golf clubs, if you're in a cart rather than walking and shame on you, unless you can't, you know, walk the course walking. Good walk spoiled. Twain is right. Nonetheless, that's the way you play the game. But in a cart, wipe down parts of the club that touch the golf cart along with parts of the bag. Handle your golf balls. Uh, again, hand sanitizer, hand washing, uh, when you pick up the ball from the cup after hopefully a birdie or at least a par, if you're picking up random golf balls, don't touch your mouth, maybe leave it behind, says the doctor. Also, you feel free to use gloves and especially when it's a little colder out, I'm wearing gloves on both hands anyway, unless it's uh, above 40. So, uh, uh, gloves are helpful. Uh, if you're using a cart, wipe the steering wheel, seat, minimize the risk of other people who have used the cart. Uh, she also says the same thing about uh, cell phones rattling around in a cart, uh, social distancing in the clubhouse. And when you're playing, keep your social distance during the round. If you're playing with friendly types, words speak louder than actions. Don't shake hands. Use the elbow bump as elbows are not highly contaminated areas. Uh, just find different ways to congratulate your playing partner on their good shot or good hole or good round but get out there and play golf do human things play golf this is Dan Proff far from the fake news he's always got the real story this is the Dan Proft show you are fake news
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Amid some of the partisanship and the effort to ascribe blame for the spread of the coronavirus in the United States, you have had moments of clarity, had moments where people begrudgingly admit that uh, their erstwhile adversaries are doing everything they can. One such moment came yesterday from Fredo's brother, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who had this to say about his working relationship with President Trump and his his administration and and, uh, quality of the support that he's getting for what he's asking. The federal government can be extremely helpful here, and we need the federal government's help. I had a conversation with the president yesterday. Uh, it was an open and honest conversation. We've always had a very good dialogue. Even when we don't agree, we've always had a very good dialogue. But the president and I agreed yesterday, look, we're fighting the same war, and this is a war. Uh, And we're in the same trench. And I have your back. You have my back. And we're going to do everything we can for the people of the the state of New York. I spoke to the president this morning about specific actions the president is going to take. I can tell you he is fully engaged on trying to help New York. He's being very creative uh, and very energetic. And I, I thank him for his partnership. Well, add that to Gavin Newsom uh, the other week. Add that to Dana Bash after the president's briefing on Tuesday. Uh, Some begrudging respect being offered in the direction of not just the president, but, of course, the entire uh, response team and the professionals that are guiding it through their expertise, like Drs. Fauci and Burks. Seems to me that's a much more productive approach. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Andrew Clavin. Famed Hollywood screenwriter, also podcaster in Other Kingdom. It's final season, season three, now available. Uh, and again, a Hollywood screenwriter, he uh, was the writer of the Gosnell movie, if you recall. Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. Andrew Clavin, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Always good to be here, Dan. Thanks. So, um, you know, it, it seems that some of the partisan sniping has been tamped down when you've got big state governors like Cuomo and Newsom trying to be constructive when you had... Mitch McConnell, uh, whether you agree with it or not, trying to be constructive and saying, even though we have qualms about what the House sent us, we're going to pass that aid package and then we're going to do more uh, people trying to you know, focus their attention where it belongs, which is on addressing all of the textural issues related to this pandemic. Yeah, in, a, in an emergency character comes out, personality comes out. One really interesting thing that everybody should remember is that all for so long we've been hearing what a uh, fascist and an authoritarian Donald Trump is. Uh, I remember Danny Deutsch on MSNBC saying that he would just wait for an emergency and use it like Hitler used the Reichstag fire to take emergency powers. And instead you see Donald Trump with total respect for the states, keeping federalism intact. He hasn't made any authoritarian moves. Every single one of those guys, from Rick Wilson, who yesterday tweeted that, uh, that Melania Trump should get infected, uh, every single one of those guys should be barred from commentary by the people who have employed them. 
And members of the press, I mean, I, I have to say, some of the members of the press who have shown themselves in this emergency to be just trash. I yeah. mean, the people who are continually focusing on whether we call this the Chinese virus or the Wu flu or whatever we call it, is that really what we need to know at this moment? I mean, people are really afraid. People are really sick. People are really suffering economically. And these guys are asking about some pet little peeve they think they have, something, some gotcha thing that they think they have on this president that absolutely 0% of the population uh, cares about. They, they should just be removed from their jobs. I mean, these are people who are not helping the public, the republic. They're not helping the news business. They're just covering themselves in shame. And, and so we, we do see character come out in these, these and, incidents. And never Trump or Rick Wilson, the hack political consultant you just referenced, uh, for those who forgot, he is the uh, creator of the phrase credulous boomer rubes to talk about Trump supporters, too. But right. uh, but he's a fan favorite of Don Lamone and the CNN crew. Uh, just to your point, too, Andrew, about uh, America's Hitler. That would be Trump, of course. <laughs> uh, uh, he closed borders in this order. China, Europe, Canada, possibly maybe sometime Mexico. I, you know, I keep remembering that old uh, commercial, uh, where's the beef? And I keep watching him going, where's the fascism? You know, <laughs> what happened What happened to our, our blossoming Hitler? And how come he's not seizing this opportunity to take power? You know, it, it really is. So many things come out. Uh, one of the things that I, I keep hearing, like in the New York Times and other leftist venues, is, oh, look, we need big government now. We should have big government all the time. And this is that don't let a crisis go to waste mentality that Rahm Emanuel talked about. Can we use this crisis to extend the reach of government? Nancy Pelosi tried to do it in her bill. Some of that stuff was taken out where she tried to extend the reach of you know, bureaucracies that we don't need. And it, it's really interesting. First, the logic of it is so crazy, this, this logic that what you do in emergency, you should do all the time. So, you know, as if, so if you're lying in bed with a ventilator on, you should lie in a bed with a ventilator on all the time. You know, if you're <laughs> huddling in your, you know, if you're not going to work and you're huddling in your house, you should do that all the time. If you're not working, you should not work all the time. It's, it's nonsense. It's a crazy thing to think about. But the other thing about it is the wealth that we have, the, the material that we have, the efficiency that we have that can come to uh, the fore in a crisis was all created by capitalism. It's all created by the free market. And in the places where they have national health, like Britain, they are really, really suffering. They're already practicing triage. They're already letting elderly people go uh, to die, which is what ultimately what national health does. If in every problem I feel that we have with our health system, if you want to call it a system, has been caused by government. If we would just let the free market take over and let people pr price things out and let them go to the doctor they want, let them choose their insurance from around the country and not have to buy it only in their state, if they would just free up the market of health care, I think we would do so much better in these crises. I, there's so much that has come up in this that I would really like to see reformed. One another thing that's happening talking about Donald Trump being right about stuff. I mean, Don, you have to say, whatever mistakes, I'm sure the administration has made mistakes, and certainly the testing was slow coming out of the, uh, coming out of the gate. And, you know, but whatever mistakes they've made, Trump has been right about borders, he's been right about the Chinese supply chain, and he's been right about globalism. All of those things fed into this crisis, and all of those things he was working on before the crisis struck. So um, Steve Mnuchin was just on with Maria Bartiroma saying the White House will send $1,000 checks to all Americans within three weeks uh, as a free marketeer and somebody who uh, knows a little bit about how not stimulative that is. What, what do you think about a measure like that? Even, and, and, and before I uh, let you answer, the, the whole like 
And don't give $1,000 checks to people like me who don't need it, not living paycheck to paycheck. Give mine to somebody else. Well, you know what? It's complicated. They're trying. If you like this idea, they're trying to get money out into people's hands. So if you're like me or Andrew who don't need a thousand bucks, then just turn it over to somebody who does, you know, made private action too. You don't need the federal government to do everything for you. But any, anyway, Andrew, go ahead on the policy. Yeah. I mean, I think the policy right now seems very scattershot to me. The idea of stimulus is not a very good idea when the economy is shut down. What are you stimulating? I think that what we could use, we could use uh, guaranteed loans for small businesses yeah. uh, that they will pay back later. That would be really important. I think you want to keep as many uh, businesses going uh, so that when we gear up again, they're still there and people still have their jobs. I think obviously people who uh, need immediate relief have to be, immediate relief has to be available. But I wish, you know, the government is such a blunt instrument. I mean, this is the, this is the problem with government. This is what, this is what Karl Marx got wrong from the very start and guys like Trotsky who said, oh, you know, it's, when, once the government takes over, how creative will business be able to be? Well, of course, it's exactly the opposite. It's basically five guys and girls competing with each other who create the creativity and the productivity. So that's where we want to get back to as fast as humanly possible. We want to get this, uh, everything up and running as, as fast as humanly possible. Uh, and in the meantime, you just have to give relief where it's needed and give it in a way where it's not going to be just a bailout uh, like we did in 2008, but it's going to create responsibilities for the government. Because you heard Bernie, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders the other day was saying any uh, business that gets bailed out should then belong to the government, essentially. <laughs> he, wanted, yeah. he, thought, he thought this was going to be his moment, you know, <laughs> communism has come at last. And I, and I think we want the opposite of that. We want to be able to get back to normal as quickly as possible in the aftermath. He is Andrew Clavin. Uh, check out his podcast, Another Kingdom, season three just concluded. Available screenwriter of the movie Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer, and famed Hollywood screenwriter and novelist uh, like True Crime, for example. Andrew Clavin, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Always great talking to you. Thanks. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The uh, DC Press Corps not affording itself particularly well yesterday. The combination of representatives from ABC and NBC News focused on uh, language. Richard Engel. It's easy to scapegoat people, and that is what has always happened when there have been pandemics or epidemics uh, that foreigners are are attacked. Foreigners sometimes physically attacked. Uh, if you look at what happened uh, during the, the Middle Ages, there was lots and lots of scapegoating uh, against an ethnic group or a religious group uh, whenever there were pandemics that affected the society and frightened a lot of people. And uh, China certainly feels that is what, happen what is happening now uh, with people calling it the, the Wuhan flu or the Wuhan virus or the, the China virus. This is a virus that came from the territory of China, but came from bats. 
This is a bat virus, not a, uh, a China virus. Uh, it doesn't speak Chinese. It doesn't target Chinese people. Uh, it targets human beings who happen to touch their eyes, nose, or, or mouth. No one has confirmed that it came from a bat, number one. So Richard Engel is just saying things he thinks are true without any evidence to support them. He had one virologist say she thinks 90% likely, and a lot of other people reject that. Just like there was a theory about a pangolin that was rejected. And so that's one thing that he did that is irresponsible as a quote-unquote journalist, which he is not. He's just a partisan like most of the rest of the D.C. press corps. Number two, viruses don't speak Chinese. Are you kidding me? The intellectual level of these people? I was alive two weeks ago, way back two weeks ago. So I was alive to remember this sort of reporting from the outlets that employ those two knuckleheads you heard from, as well as CNN and MSNBC. This is all happening at a time that we're starting to see a message shift here because you're starting to hear the Republicans, especially Trump Co., calling it the Wuhan or the Chinese coronavirus. They're looking for someone to blame. Concern is growing this morning over an outbreak of a new SARS-like virus in China. At least six people have died from the Wuhan coronavirus. Allison the Camerata. Wuhan coronavirus. The Wuhan coronavirus. Uh, it's uh, perfectly clear, just as their uh, pronouncements and everything else. Trump is a politician in pursuit of being a dictator. And now Trump should be king, should act like a king. He wanted to be a king. That was untrue. Now they say he should act like a king, and that's not true either. Consistently wrong. By the way, uh, just uh, on the origins of the virus findings published in Nature Medicine. Comparing the uh, available genome sequence data for known coronavirus strains, we can firmly determine that SARS-CoV-2 originated through natural processes, said Christian Anderson, an associate professor of immunology and microbiology at Scripps Research and author of the paper. That is one of those experts who disputes the bat theory that you and Richard Engel are clinging to. The lies, the lies, the lies. Good piece by Mark Hemingway in the New York Post about uh, people like Dana Milbank at the Washington Post. Trump said it's a hoax, never said the virus was a hoax. That's a lie, he knows it. Dr. Anthony Fauci was muzzled, not true. Dr. Anthony Fauci had to tell the press it wasn't true. By the way, with respect to the press corps, since they're so sensitive about names, I just wonder, did they consider the feelings of Russian Americans for two years when they talked about Russian collusion? Wasn't, wasn't Wasn't that insensitive to term it Russian collusion? For more on the topic of globalism, because we're talking about wannabe globalists, although probably without the intellectual heft, most of them to qualify. We're pleased to be joined by Jason Morgan, associate professor in the Faculty of Foreign Studies at Reitaku University in Japan. I hope I pronounced that right. Jason, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. That's right. Thanks Uh, for having me. Thank you. Um, Tell us about what it's like to be homo globalists, as uh, you term it. (laughs) I'm thrilled that somebody read the piece. Thank you so much for having me on. In my mind, homo globalist is a person without patriotism, without any obligations to home or country, someone who just roams the world making money and selling out disadvantaged people. When this whole Wuhan virus, I think it's important to call it the Wuhan virus, and I'll talk about that in a second. But when the Wuhan virus outbreak started, I was struck by the fact that conversation that had been in the news for a couple of years about outsourcing medicines to China suddenly seemed to strike people as, as having great currency. But this has been a problem for, for years, and we've basically sold out our ability to protect ourselves to a foreign country, a hostile foreign country. And in my mind, this is homo globulus. He's uh, the man without a country who just makes money selling out other people's 
what's it like to be a globalist is the question that you, you ask and you go through it. Then you point out a couple of things I'd like you to get to since we were just discussing it. Sure. First, homo globalist does not like language very much, at least not words, <laughs> with, right. not words with meanings. That's right. That's the whole thing to avoid is that words would have meanings. It's nominalism all over again. Now, there was a great piece in the, um, the Tokyo newspaper, Sankei Shimbun, this morning by Abiru Rui, who's one of the great conservative voices of Japan. And he said, the reason we call it the Wuhan virus is not because it came from Wuhan, but because the authorities and the Chinese government covered this thing up for two months. And that's why people are dying around the world today. It's not because it came from China. It's because the Chinese authorities, to save their own positions, let people die. That's why you call it the Wuhan virus, to remind people that this is a Chinese man-made Chernobyl-type problem. This is not a, a natural problem. Uh, the second thing about homo globalists, that um, time, uh, he or she exists outside of time. <laughs> right. Well, I just heard the, the segments that you had on before you patched into me. You know, just two weeks ago, everybody in the world was calling this the Wuhan virus, and suddenly it's racist to say that it's the Wuhan virus. It's, there's a time warp that I just can't get on board. <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, things change so quick. One day it's all right to say something, and the next day it's you're a bigot for saying the thing that was said yesterday. It's a, it's a strange passage of time for the globalist. Would it be fair to say that uh, Japanese culture is uh, tends to be one that is more obedient to authority than, say, American culture? Well, I think this whole coronavirus thing coincided with the ninth anniversary of the Fukushima disaster of nine years ago. And so I think the folks here, more than being obedient, I think that folks are pretty calm. You know, they, they keep a cool head and uh, there's not much panicking that goes on when a disaster strikes. Just kind of buck up and do what you have to do. Last night, I interviewed uh, Melissa Chen, who is a Chinese-American living in New York. She uh, writes for Spectator USA. She wrote about how pandemics changed the way we think. And she, mm -hmm. talk, she talked about, uh, and it was very interesting with respect to all these uh, nouveau cries of racism from the press corps. Uh, she talked about our behavioral immune system that guides our, our instinct for disease avoidance behaviors. It's subconscious. And one of the things she recounts is like, oh, as Cecilia Vega was saying, you know, people are saying don't go to Chinatown, and this has been for weeks and weeks and weeks. And what she's saying is that's not racist. In fact, um, my dad wouldn't go to Chinatown either when this uh, outbreak started, not because he doesn't like Chinese restaurants or he doesn't like the proprietors in Chinatown. It's because he recognized, you know, I know a lot of the proprietors. I know they have family that go back and forth to China. I know they go back and forth to China. So I'm worried about their social network in terms of the, the spread of the disease. It's not because I right. don't like Chinese people like me. And that's what a lot of people did, too. So it's, it's sort of a, a subconscious behavioral immune response. It not, has nothing to do with the race of a particular people. Yeah, the left wing in the United States, he just got to get over the race thing. I mean, the, the reason they had to lock down Wuhan was because the people who live in Wuhan were trying to get out of Wuhan. I mean, it's Chinese people trying to leave a city in China because there's a virus breaking out. It has nothing to do with race. You know, when there's a crisis, people don't think about skin color. They think of protecting themselves and their families. And that's I mean, there's nothing to do with ethnicity. He is Jason Morgan. He's given us a lot to think about with respect to homo globalists, which I'm going to start using. Very good. Uh, <laughs> Asso associate professor of the Faculty of Foreign Studies at Reitaku University in Japan. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And one of the things under discuss, education with tens of millions of school children at home with their parents as uh, so many school districts are closed. How do you keep your child engaged in their intellectual development continuing, particularly in some cases where you're not getting much support or interaction with the school or school system in which your kid otherwise matriculates? Yeah, Uh, my uh, broadcast partner in Chicago, the morning show I do, uh, the high school that she sends her two boys, not getting homework assignments, not getting communication from the teachers. It's sort of remarkable, certainly contrasts from my friends who have kids in private schools in Chicagoland. But OK, it's a reality. Chicago public school system, one of the uh, biggest systems in America. So I assume this is uh, happening elsewhere as well, or certainly whatever is being provided by the school may not be as robust as if the uh, school was operating under normal conditions. So what to do? And frankly, it's an opportunity for us to think about what K through 12 education may look like post coronavirus in the same way there's discussion underway about what post-secondary education, college will and should look like. This has been coming for a long time. It's just that this may expedite the transformation of the provision of education, which there's a lot of reasons why it should. For the most part in America, we are running K through 12 school systems the same way we were when Harry Truman was president despite what we know about it in the public sector particularly. One example of this, Success Academy in New York, Eva Moskowitz, quite the innovator, and Success Academy has proven just that, successful. Just this week, she uh, opened a webinar on her network, the Success Academy's transition from 45 brick-and-mortar charter schools to the anticipated launch of remote learning for its 18,000 students. More than 2,000 people signed up for the webinar, comprising teachers, school administrators, interested parties from across the country, uh, plus obviously Success Academy parents who want to know what uh, the schooling uh, at Success Academy is going to look like. Change is scary sometimes. She uh, points out that the philosophy here, actually the guiding principle, she sets forth first principles as any good leader would do. Number one, simple, simple, simple. Number two, clear roles for leaders, teachers, parents, and students. Number three, easily deployed anytime for any amount. Number four, works for parents while keeping excellence bar high. Number five, reading, top priority. Number six, minimal additional work to create and deploy. Uh, There was no talk of test scores in the webinar. She uh, urged her listeners to keep it simple, as is the philosophy. We're not medical experts. We're not city planners. Uh, This is a time for simplicity and being careful not to throw in too many bells and whistles. Her schools, noting her schools and staff would place a premium on inspiring and engaging their students. Uh, Enhancements will come later as you get more experience in this radical change and the unusual modality that we are operating in. For as long as it must operate without buildings and classrooms, Success Academy plans to follow those principles that I just articulated. Uh, At the elementary school level, teachers are expected to call each student twice a day for five to seven minutes to talk about daily math work and the books children are reading. The expectation for the youngest Success Academy students is about two and a half hours of learning time per day with frequent breaks. At the middle uh, school and high school levels, Success Academy has the advantage of students already equipped with school-issued Chromebooks and the ability to work a little bit longer and more independently. This is uh, uh, with those students that are a little bit older. Uh, they're a little bit closer to a full remote learning environment. 
but uh, there's still logistical hurdles, of course. Um, the, the important point there is that you have these models of innovation and you have uh, all those online resources that I talked about uh, yesterday. I mentioned on the show yesterday from Khan Academy to uh, associations that provide curriculum in um, hard sciences to um, so many of the other uh, resources that you can access online uh, through uh, institutions of higher learning like the the history and constitutional offerings at Hillsdale College, for example. Um, and so uh, just thinking about that, I just want to add my own regimen to it, just as a way to think about your kids' intellectual development. One of the things that I try to do on a monthly basis, and you know, do it imperfectly, is uh, fill uh, a half a dozen buckets. Uh, work to, or experience the work of a new author, a new playwright, a new poet, a new philosopher, a new economist, and a new actor, director, uh, each, uh, and, and, and a new musician each month. For example, this month I'm reading a lot of Bertolt Brecht, the uh, German playwright and uh, socialist agitprop uh, purveyor, because I'm you know, interested in these times and how social, effective socialist agitprop, which he was a practitioner of. This is the Dan Brock Show. Anything you want, you got it. Anything you need, you got it. Anything at all, you got it. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. weeks ago we reported on this story of Avita Duffy participating in a little initiative engineered by David Axelrod's Institute for Political Skullduggery, uh, known uh, otherwise as the Institute Politics. I vote because dot, dot, dot. And students were to pose with a small white board stating their personal reasons for voting. So some examples as a uh, Avita Duffy recounts, Medicare for all. I vote because Medicare for all. I vote because universal health care shouldn't be considered a radical idea. I vote because children shouldn't be kept in cages and so on and so forth. You sort of get the ideological disposition of the student body, don't you? Well, Avita wrote on her whiteboard and posted, I vote because the coronavirus won't destroy America, but socialism will. That, that was essentially a clarion call for the barbarian hordes to descend on Avita Duffy for her alleged intemperate statement, a statement against socialism. So I don't know if you could have a free marketplace of idea if you're not allowed to oppose socialism. The irony completely lost on the proponents of socialism, of course. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Avita Duffy, who is a sophomore at the University of Chicago, uh, wrote this piece, I am the IOP whiteboard girl. She'll go on to do more important things than be the IOP whiteboard girl. She's also the daughter of our friend, uh, Congressman Sean Duffy. Avita, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Tell us what happened after that circulated, what you wrote on your whiteboard, and, and how things are now uh, a couple of weeks after the fact. Well, I received some pretty astounding backlash from my peers. They went after my intellect, 
They liked my character and my even my appearance and my family. And the tip of the iceberg really was when I received death threats, specifically when someone said that I should be shot in front of a brick wall, a very kind of communist uh, yeah. <laughs> threat, if you ask me. Um, but that, yeah, that was kind of the tip of it. And then the university didn't come to my defense until after I came out with an op-ed and they received a lot of heat from alumni, students, other students in my defense and, and parents saying, hey, you guys need to, you know, live up to your Chicago principles and defend students who are being viciously attacked for their beliefs. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm I'm in I'm I'm heartened to hear that when they ran all out of all other options and only under duress did uh, campus leadership rally to your defense. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. I don't think that's quite consistent with the statement of principles for which they receive so much credit. So what did that coming to your defense look or sound like? Yeah, so it was um, it was a letter and the same publication that my op-ed came out by David Axelrod himself, but essentially a week later um, and. I, you know, it's that that's really unfortunate to me. And, and also what's, what's, inter- what's interesting about that is the day after um, my photo was, ex- you know, shared all over campus, um, they had the staff of the Institute of Politics clear their schedules to meet with offended students um, for my <laughs> statement, but didn't even reach out to me. I emailed them and they didn't even email me back to meet with me. So I just thought that, that you know, like who, the real victim of this, me, who's getting... Um, really personal attacks and even death threats isn't even being emailed back, but we can clear our schedules for students who feel offended. And, and what um, about so that tells you anything about university? That is, that is just, that's perfect. It's perfect. That's a perfect example of the college campus in 2020 America. Uh, and what, to, what about uh, president Zimmer and other administrators beyond a, a political hack like Axelrod? What, what about, uh, what about other professors on campus? Anybody, Anybody of their own volition say uh, you, you shouldn't be excoriating your fellow student for having a viewpoint in opposition to socialism? You know, so not not publicly. <laughs> um, Zimmer has not said anything and reached out to me, but um, I've had three teachers um, email me personally, and I was very grateful for that. Uh, I, you know, it's good to have some faculty support. Um, but as far as anyone in the upper administration besides Axelrod, um, publicly come to my defense that is you know yet to be seen and probably will never be seen (laughs) what's the story on and the campus university of chicago more generally again i just go back to you know you they receive all this praise for the courage it took to issue that statement a few years back and and uh, this seems to be a case where they have no interest in actually defending it and i wonder if that is really the state of affairs more generally there yeah you know i i think it's been you know, my opinion that the university kind of likes to play both sides as a very progressive school and yet free speech. And so they get, you know, donors who like both, right? Um, but the truth is that the Chicago principles are a piece of paper <laughs> um, that, you know, is, they, they say that they, you know, want to emulate. And yet, you know, when it comes to being put into practice, you don't really see that. Um, and I, I think that that's unfortunate. And honestly, it's it's false advertising for students who come here um, with that expectation, as I did. Uh, so, Evita, given the death threats and the treatment you've otherwise received from some of your classmates, do you feel safe returning to school? And if so, when will that happen? After I, I come out with my op-ed, um, I actually lay out the kind of threats that I was getting. I think that even a few 
um, leftists, but especially closet conservatives, because those exist on campus, they're afraid to, you know, say anything. They really came to, you know, personally reach out to me and say, hey, we agree with you. We don't feel, you know, safe saying it on online or defending you in the comment section, but we, we do agree with you. And so I think that knowing that there are people out there who, um, you know, are on my side, even if it's kind of silent, is, is always comforting. Um, and so you know that you're not alone. And even people, I know there. I mean, especially that there were a few, you know, people who said, "I don't agree with what you wrote, but I agree that you have the right to say it." That was also very comforting. There was few, but they were there were some, and so that was that was good to hear. Mm, the difference between a leader that would be you and the followers, and that would be everybody who whispers their support or tolerance of you behind uh, mm-hmm. closed doors. It's uh, so. So dispiriting. And this, again, is a university that's considered one of the you know, top 10 right behind Northwestern in the uh, in the country. Uh, uh, well, come on, let's not let's not be silly. Uh, so um, so you're sticking it out at University of Chicago. Yeah, yeah, I will. You know, I think that that's what conservatives need to do. I think that if you if you you know, if you all co- like, you know, congregate into one or two schools, you know, that thing's going to ever change. Conservatives need to feel empowered to go to these progressive institutions and challenge the status quo. That's the only way you're going to see change. I love it. Good for you. Trial by fire. I, when I was at Northwestern, I was the most hated man on campus easily. Uh, and uh, you're, you're going to be received much better because you're much more pleasant than I am. But uh, so, so good luck there. But I love the fact that you're a fighter and I love how you handled this whole matter. Uh, well done, Avita. Thanks for joining us. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and into my best Karnak the Magnificent, a drive through confessor, store, grocery store shelf stacker, and Yo-Yo Ma. What are real men of genius? Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Yeah, this uh, Bud's for you, uh, wanting to uh, raise a glass to... Um, all those unsung heroes still working through and paying tribute to the unsung heroes uh, during this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, serious note, uh, heroic supermarket shelf stackers facing customer chaos, panic buying and even violence. This comes to us from the Daily Mail talking about um, shelf stackers at uh, grocery stores, Coles and Woolworths in Australia, for example. One uh, Woolworths employee saying we're going against our family's wishes by working during the coronavirus crisis. It's a similar situation of firefighters risking their lives during the brush fires in January. Well, okay. Uh, it's uh, the, the risk, of course, being the risk of infection, although the, uh, the lethality risk is probably a little bit different, but appreciated nonetheless. People uh, doing jobs to help other people when you're having, for example, special times that are being uh, demarcated by grocery stores and retailers for seniors to uh, get access to products that they need, sort of so, you know, making those accommodations. So the the supermarket shelf stacker, uh, the drive through confessor. How about this? Um, Marilyn Priest, he is uh, Father or Reverend Scott Holmer, St. Edward the Confessor Parish 
in uh, Bowie, Maryland, uh, doing uh, drive-through confessions in the parking lot. You've got the National Funeral Directors Association limiting uh, funeral attendance or advisory to limit funeral attendance or also live stream, you know, again, using, utilizing the Internet to adjust in this in this time. And and then, you know, per uh, Dan Henninger's piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal, the heroes of 9-11 were cops and firemen. The heroes of the pandemic of 2020 will be hospital workers. Miracles aren't much in fashion. And maybe if politicians took real risks to free the economy after the crisis, someone may even call them heroes. Let's leave the politicians out of it for now. We'll take a wait and see attitude there. But with respect to the supermarket shelf stackers and the drive through confessors and the healthcare workers, uh, I give you Yo-Yo Ma, a man of Chinese descent, a great one of the great cellists the world has ever seen. He offered uh, this uh, Saraband from Box Cello Suite Number no. Three. Uh, in thanks to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I just extended the thanks for him. But uh, as we have the last couple of shows ending with uh, uplifting, triumphant arias from uh, Italian tenor Mauricio Marchini, I give you Yo Yo Ma and his Bach uh, cello suite number three. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.